Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. there friends music nerds everybody else all you people out there welcome back to um season four of the podcast i just realized the intro uh i haven't listened to it for a long time and i'm i even when i do this i don't actually listen to it again but i can't remember if the intro might say season three in which case there's a real big problem there that i'll have to fix anyway i'll check that out Anyway, it's season four, not season three. And, uh, you know, we're in the middle of this, this stuff here. I don't know what's going on. Um, things are cruising along much as they have been before. I'm going to uh, keep you posted on a, a little bit of what's going on with me, and we'll check in with uh, a bunch of listeners. However, um, for now, what we're doing is getting into some nerdy music talk with an incredible musician, Um and I'm sure a lot of the listeners, knowing what I know about you guys out there, have heard his music. And his name is Charlie Hunter, and he's an absolute monster. And he's also a super nice guy and really funny, and we had a ball talking. So we're going to do that up very soon. First of all, once again, I am inviting all listeners to uh, feel free to call in. This has just started this season. I haven't done this before, but I'm actually really enjoying this, and I'm going to continue to encourage it. You can be a musician or you can not be a musician. You can call in. But what I what I would like to hear is just what people are up to. I like to just sort of connect with who's out there listening. And, you know, it would be great to hear from some people from the far reaches. This podcast apparently does well in Denmark and Sweden and other places like that, which is very mysterious to me. And I would like some proof of that. So if you're in Sweden or Denmark or Norway and actually listen to this show, if this is true high 
tech data that I'm receiving. I want to hear from you. Come on, do it up. Yeah, feel free to call in. Tell me what's going on with your life. If you're involved in the music business, tell me a little bit about what you're going through, some of the work that you've lost, uh, what's happening with support from your government or whatever, you know, maybe some musical suggestions as well. So feel free to call in. The number is 615-375-6318. That is a Nashville number, but it doesn't actually ring anywhere. And you can call in anytime, day or night, and leave a message there. And I usually put two or three on each episode. And assuming people continue to call in, we'll keep hearing from you all. Uh, You can also just email me. You know, maybe if you're in Denmark and you don't want to phone across the ocean, uh, I get it. So email me at steve at thehenhousestudio.com. This goes on for the first 10 or 12 minutes. If you're a listener and you don't want to hear any of this stuff, that's cool. Just go ahead and jump ahead, you know, about 12 minutes. That's how long we're going to sit here blabbing about what we're all going through. And uh, I hope some people find it engaging. I think some people have because a a bunch of people have called in. If you are a listener of the show, you know that I can use your help. This podcast is totally listener supported. And if you are in a position where you can contribute financially, we do need your help to keep this thing going now more than ever. And you can do that through a couple of ways. One is through a monthly Patreon subscription or a one-time donation. And both of those are really easy to do. You can just visit stevedawson.ca or thehenhousestudio.com. Those both go to the same place for now. And uh, you go to the podcast page and all the info is right there. You can also buy a t-shirt. That's a cool way. I have a whole bunch of new shirts sitting here that I would be happy to ship out using some high-tech gloves. And uh, I will get those to you. If you're not in a position to help out, just sit back and listen. That's cool too. Uh, In the past week, we've had a bunch of contributors and I just wanted to shout out to them and thank them for their support. Jim Pollard, Stephen Kaplan, Michael Thompson, Charlie Banks, William Humby, Ron Powell, Jeff Hicks, my good pal from Vancouver. Awfully sweet. Stephen Skyhill, Skyhill, Stephen Skyhill, I'm going to go with that, and Sean Fetter. Thank you guys, there's a, a lot of expenses that I have to do with this show, and this helps keep me floating through it all unscathed, and I appreciate that very much. Okay, and one other thing I have to tell you about this week is we are running a contest with our good friends at Union Tube and Transistor, our one sponsor for the show. And Chris over at Union is offering up a couple things, a t-shirt or a hat, that's one part, and a bean counter pedal. And so Chris at Union has come up with a um, budget-friendly version of all of his popular pedals. They work the same. They even look the same. Apparently, there's some corners that he was able to cut to make them aesthetically uh, a little bit less expensive. And so they are kind of a budget-friendly version of all the popular pedals. So uh, check them out online at uniontone.com. And he has these bean counter versions of the Moore pedal, the Tone Druid, Swindle, Snap, Tourbender, Sarbomba, and Sub Buzz. All you need to do is call in to the number that we talked about before and just leave a message as you would about the uh, virus and your time in it and what you're going through and what you're doing during that time, some listening suggestions or creative ideas. And one more time, that number to call is 615-375-6318. So do that, and then at the end, just mention that you want to be entered into the um, contest. And in three weeks, we will draw a name and give you some of that cool stuff. All right, so that's pretty wicked. All right, let's hear from a few callers. Uh, The first one here is Bruce with a music recommendation. Let's check it out. 
Hi, Steve. This is Bruce calling from Portland, Oregon. Uh, just finished listening to the Jim Campolongo uh, episode, which I really enjoyed. At the top of the episode, you were thanking some uh, finan- recent financial backers, and you named Jerry David DeChica. And um, you should probably look him up, at least on Spotify. He's a, uh interesting guy. I had the chance to see him live in Portland at a little teeny club a couple years ago, but in 2018, he dropped a couple of records. He's been playing around a lot. Uh, but check him out on Spotify, especially the, a record called Time the Teacher. I think you'd uh, really like it. So thanks for your show. I really love it a lot. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Bruce. So Jerry David DeChica. I think I got that name right, maybe. That's amazing. Um, I'm going to go check it out. You should too. Good to hear some musical suggestions from our listeners. Uh, our next caller is a fantastic musician, a drummer. A lot of you know him from Calexico or Giant Sand. It's John Convertino. He was on the show a couple of years back, and he's a super nice guy. If you haven't listened to his episode, dive right back on in there. He's calling in, and he's got a technological slash creative idea for all you music people quarantined out there. Hey, Steve. It's John Convertino calling from El Paso. And uh, I appreciate you um, opening the gate here, being the gatekeeper for us folks to just express ourselves a little bit um, during this difficult time. I appreciate it. I just wanted to uh, make a suggestion to uh, quarantined musicians. Um, I'm stepping into my garage right now and, uh, I got a drum set set up and my vibes and my trusty suitcase of percussion stuff. And, uh, just making a suggestion on this amazing app called, uh, Spire. And, uh, you can record on your phone. I know a lot of musicians already have their home setups and they have their computers and their microphones and that's awesome. But for some of us, that gets to be a, even too tricky. So, uh, I've been recording my drums just with my phone on this, uh, app called Spire and it's really easy and it suits my drum sound quite nice. It's usually how I like to mic up anyway in the studios, just very few microphones. So. One mic, and uh, my friends uh, are sending uh, tracks, and I put drums to them, and it's awesome, and it's fun. And I just kind of wanted to share that, and um, I don't know, maybe this is the reset button on the human race, and uh, it's just, uh, it's perplexing. Anyway, thanks, Steve, and that's my tip. Adios. Bye. Thank you, John. Awesome suggestion. I'm going to check that out myself right after I get done here. All right, and I'll take uh, one more caller here. Oh, and here's a good one. Uh, this is my one of my oldest friends, fantastic drummer as well. This one hailing from Vancouver, my old pal Jeff Hicks. And it's great to hear from uh, some friends that are listening to this show as well. And let's hear what Jeff is up to up in Vancouver. Hey, pal. It's Jeff Hicks, your old friend. We've played music together for, I don't know, 60, 70, maybe 80 years. Um, I love you and the family, and I 
so enjoyed the Robin Ford episode uh, amongst so many others. And I just wanted to say, um, I feel you. I know you're in the exact same boat I am, except you're in the States and I'm up here in Vancouver, Canada. And I know that it's still the same boat and we're all suffering and it's weird. Uh, things are okay. My health is fine. I had to cut a tour short um, down the West Coast in mid-March. But uh, now I'm actually at home cooking, uh, enjoying a lot of walking, uh, sleeping, um, um, a, a fair bit of drinking. I don't want to get into that. But what I want to say is that everything's going to be fine and that I care about you and the family and... Um, I really hope we can play music together again soon. Um, I, I'm going to go for a walk in the park across the street, although they have closed down much of it uh, with uh, fencing. Uh, maybe armed guards? I'm not sure what's happening. Love you, pal. Keep up the good work. You're keeping us sane and happy. And uh, I want to see you on the other side of this. Bye-bye. Thanks for the call, Jeff. We love you too and hope you're, hope you're digging this. Uh, as a drummer, I hope you're... You're surviving all this guitar chatter that we've been up to lately. And I do have a drummer or two in the works. And there's a bass player that's going to come up next week. So, you know, hang in there, everyone else. Okay, so what have I been up to this week? I don't know. Um, playing some guitar, uh, messing around with reverb tanks. That's really fun. <laughs> the kind of stuff I just never really have time to do. I'm also putting together some lessons that I'm selling of some tunes that I've released as instrumental acoustic guitar pieces over the years. I've had people ask me for transcriptions and I've always said, no, I don't have any of that stuff. Well, I took a little bit of time and now I do. So um, I don't know if you've ever listened to any of that stuff and you want some acoustic guitar music to work on. There's a lesson up there now at stevedawson.ca and you go to the lessons page. There's one up there now and I'm putting another one up in a couple days and I'll keep putting them out and they're uh, little finger style guitar pieces that you can nerd out on so that's what i've been doing and i'm also doing some remote sessions and uh you know like applying for some aid from this and that and nothing seems to be working but i don't really want to harp on that too much how have you guys been doing with that has anyone gotten any any of that financial stimulus i hope so i think a lot of american people have received theirs i'm not sure what's going on with the canadian stuff they're definitely lining up to uh, get some financial assistance so that's cool i don't really know where that's at though but uh, let me know when you call in so let's get down to business and the business here being mr charlie hunter as you know in this season because we're doing all this chatter at the beginning i'm keeping my preamble about the artist to a minimum i expect you guys to go out and do all your homework and and find out all the pertinent information but what i can tell you is in the 90s when i was kind of starting out and playing a bunch of clubs and touring all over the place i became aware of a group called tj kirk and they were this crazy band from san francisco or the bay area anyway i'm not sure exactly and it consisted of three guitar players with really unique voices. And it was also produced by Lee Townsend, who I was a big fan of through my awareness of Bill Frizzell's work. One of those guitarists was Charlie Hunter. And then I got to know Charlie as a solo artist. He started putting out records. 
And this was even like pre YouTube slash internet days, more or less, or that it was just getting going and, and everything wasn't, you know, readily as available as it is now. What was abundantly clear about Charlie Hunter was that he was a monster guitar player, but also underneath that he was playing bass at the same time. And he had this crazy seven string or eight string guitar at that time. And nobody really could wrap their head around what he was up to. And it was totally mind boggling. And I got to see him back in the day with TJ Kirk. And then over the years as a, as a solo artist doing all kinds of interesting combinations. I saw him in Vancouver with Scott Amendola, a wonderful drummer, and then with his own band at a festival more recently. And we've gotten to know each other a little bit just by hanging out and talking. And he's also a super nice guy. So lately, Charlie has been doing this project with a great singer named Lucy Woodward, and they have a project out called Music, Music, Music. And then the, the other side of Charlie that's totally crazy, too, is that he's got this like really deep connection with early hip-hop. And he had this band with Michael Franti called the Disposable Heroes of Hip-Hopracy that I really dug back in the day, and uh, he has sort of mixed feelings about, so we got to talk about that. And then he had this big, crazy session where he plays on D'Angelo's Voodoo record, which is, you know, kind of revered as one of the classic records of the last 30 years. And that was a wacky experience for him, too. And I wanted to get the scoop on that. So all kinds of stuff to talk about with Charlie. So go to charliehunter.com. There's tons of info on there and a big discography of all the cool stuff that he's done over the years. And make sure you check out his new record with Lucy Woodward. And now let's launch right into my conversation with Charlie Hunter. Well, thanks for doing this, man. I, it's awesome to have you. Hey, thank you, man. I'm a fan of your show now. I've listened to probably 10 <laughs> or 12 of them so All right. far. Wicked. Yeah, I had no idea that... I know Lindley fairly well. I had no idea that Ricardo Montalban was his uncle. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I think that threw you for a loop, too. You were like, uh, <laughs> huh? <laughs> yeah, the, his whole the like being related to both Linda Ronstadt and M Ricardo Montalban is beyond bananas to me. Yeah, wait, how is he related to Linda Ronstadt? They're cousins. Wow. Yeah. Fucking what a trip, man! What a trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, he's he had a few tidbits. <laughs> oh no doubt no yeah. doubt man oh my god yeah i'm a, i'm a huge lindley fan so it was um it was fun oh to have same here man yeah what i'd like to maybe start with is like a kind of big picture thing to do with the way that you play and sure before we get into like i want to talk some specifics about your style of course and and your instruments and okay. and how you approach it but in the big picture i just wanted to get your take on how you're approaching playing guitar these days because it's always said that you're playing bass and guitar at the same time and while that's true it kind of it feels to me that it's deeper than that and I'm I'm guessing that since you've been playing that way for so long that you may have kind of stopped thinking about breaking it down into two instruments in that way am I right or, or do you still break Dude, down what you're you doing are into... so you are so right and that's <laughs> okay. such an awesome fucking if I can say fucking question you can you can say that yeah. um Dude, yes. I mean, and of course, a guy that plays on the level that you play that 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 knows the intricacies and the ins and outs of of really dedicating yourself to to this pushing the van up the hill life of 
figuring out weird techniques on stringed instruments, you know, you kind of got to get that. And, um, and yes, I mean, when I began this whole thing, of course, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure we have a lot of the same influences. Um, I don't know. You know, maybe we do. Well, well, I think, I think we probably have some pretty good overlap. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I, but yeah. you know when I was a, so I was a street musician in Europe for about three years. Um, and I played a lot of stand-up bass on the street, actually, because really? I got I hooked up with this group of people, and I was the low guitar guy on the totem pole. So that meant that I was the youngest, and I had to carry this big-ass bass and <laughs> play like 12 hours a day on an acoustic bass, which basically just meant I had to tape my fingers together, like on both hands, just so I could survive the day. But, you know, I mean, th that's totally tangential. But what I was getting at was, you know, I spent a lot of time playing solo stuff, um, backing up singers, listening to a lot of Joe Pass and Tuck Andrus. And, and then of course, you know, um, when I came back to the Bay area, um, I started playing with Jay Lane and, and Dave Ellis. Um, and, you know, I was playing a seven string with a low A, you know, and, and so I was really checking out a lot of bass players, but it, it, and, and trying to do that, if you hear that record, I have put out that uh, record in 93 that Les Quakel produced. Um, the trio. You can kind of hear the, yeah, you can hear the beginning of that kind of stuff happening. Yeah. Um, when I got that eight string made by Ralph Novak is when I was really like, okay, wait a minute. Like, I actually really have to study bass a lot more. And, and of course, at that time, you know, if you remember like the early 90s, mid 90s, you know, having lots of chops was really at a premium. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? That was, you know, that was the time where if you, if you didn't feel like you were going to like have, you know, just a cardiac arrest and an aneurysm at the same time from playing <laughs> everything you knew all at once, then you weren't going to be accepted. You know what I mean? So uh, at that point I, but you know, when you're young, you're in your twenties, you, you have a, like a propensity for that, for that kind sure. of, <laughs> involvement right so you know long story short i spent a lot of time digging into the james jamerson world mill hinton world and of okay. course organ players you know yeah, and so yeah. I, I spent a lot of time with larry young and jimmy smith and you know just trying to adapt all these techniques to this weird instrument and at that time sorry it's taking me so long to come around to this but at that time you know i really wanted it to be obvious that i was playing the bass and the guitar quote unquote at the same time right. and how important it was for me to play all my licks on either side right yeah, yeah. um of course I, and i apologize to all the drummers i played with at that time as well uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know as time went by and i became less enamored of that and i i got out of that guitar bass mentality and I got out of that kind of jazz kind of shredding mentality, I started slowly circling back to thinking about, well, what does this instrument do that's actually, you know, because every kind of instrument has its, its home, you know, it, it, mm -hmm. and, and it has a kind of a superpower. And then your approach to it is kind of how you use that as a language, right? Um, and, you know, you, we're talking about guys like David Lindley and, and Ry Cooter and, you know, somebody like Wes Montgomery, someone like Tuck Andrus, someone like Joe Pass, like uh, Joseph Spence, you know, yeah. uh, you know, Blind Blake, Charlie Patton. How do they use 
the the what the guitar has to offer you know uh-huh. and then i realized that what my ha- my instrument ultimately had to offer had nothing to do with shredding either on the bass side or the guitar side and nothing to do with making it sound like a bass and a guitar at the same time and ultimately it had everything to do with not independence but interdependence and how i could be more of a drummer and really drive the music and and at at that point it was i had really had to take a step back because um it meant that i really had to involve myself more in the covert chops yeah. you know basically i took i the last you know 10 years i've just been playing a lot of drums and again not to be mr drum flash guy but really to investigate uh how deep i can try to understand in interdependence and groove and feel and then i brought i bring that to my instrument and you know and i and i start to realize like well okay so i'm developing into an adult you know uh-huh. and um and and the instrument ultimately it's been a hell of a journey you know and it's got a lot of interesting stuff but you know um it's more about you know and i i've switched to a seven string which i lost the the highest guitar string from the eight string and then i messed with my tuning and then recently for the last almost two years, I've been playing this thing I kind of call a big six, which is basically like uh, the low three bass strings are GCF, like a bass on the third fret, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the guitar strings are CF B flat. So it's like ADG, but on the third fret as well. And, you know, I, I um, guys at hybrid. Get, Do you like the range of that? Or like why that? that? Yeah, I like Yes. Yeah. I like the range of it. And also it allows the neck to be a little fatter so I can get my sausage fingers on the right (laughs) hand into the strings to be more, um, uh, kind of articulate, right. Rhythmically articulate. And you know, what, what the, the trend I noticed in myself was I was sacrificing, uh, a string guitar string here, guitar string there, in order to, you know, you know, sacrificing range on the instrument to, to, to the benefit of, of, of tone and ultimately to the benefit of rhythm, you know, mm-hmm. and also realizing that, well, you know, it's, it's that whole thing they talk about, well, we need more freeways, we need more freeways and, or we need more parking because it will solve the problem of, of the congestion. But in fact, the more freeways you make and the more parking you make, it only creates more congestion because people want to use it and more people feel like they should use it. And I feel like the same thing was happening to me with the eight string and then the seven string where I was just like, wait, I I have that high string. I'm always going to be trying to play it and I don't really need to play it. So, Ah. you know, I, I find over the years, Circling back to your question, which I hate to take so long to answer it, but that's what this is about. (laughs) Yeah. Well, ultimately, you know, it's more about what can I do? What can I contribute in my little infinitesimal kind of way to, to the, the, you know, thousands year old conversation here, you know, Uh and trying to be a guitar and a bass at the same time, uh, while it, it, it's a nice nifty way to sell product um, is not really the point. The point is let me take the bass and the guitar knowledge and the drum knowledge I have and try to use whatever technique and, and, you know, facility I have for, 
for good rather than evil, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well said. You mean like you're literally playing the drums a lot, like at home? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Right on. Yeah, I mean, I try to put in an, an hour a day and, and, you know, of course, when I'm on the road, I don't really, I don't really get to, to do it, you yeah. know? But, um, but uh, you know, at, at home, I'm, I'm, it's just part of my practice regimen, you know? Yeah, cool. Let's talk about some of the some of the current stuff you're doing, and then we'll circle back and talk about some of this other stuff, and and obviously get into more depth with with what what you've opened. You've opened a lot of cans of worms there, but uh, yeah, sure. So, so you're living in Asheville now? No, I live in Greensboro. Oh, Greensboro, North Carolina. It's about three hours east of Asheville on okay. forty. So, how did you end up in Greensboro? Well, you know, uh, my wife and I moved from the Bay Area to New York. Oh man, it's like 23, 24 years ago. Yeah. And we were in New York and Jersey for, I mean, we were in Brooklyn for like five years. And then we were, we had, you know, two kids we raised in, in Montclair, New Jersey. And, um, we were there for 15 years and, you know, we, you know, as parents, you, you know, you, we, we ended up in a place where, where it was right for our kids, but ultimately not really right for us, you mm -hmm. know, um, and, uh, we really need, I, I just was a little stressed out all the time. And, and, um, I had really aged out of being in New York for any professional reason, you know, yeah. and the cost of living just was so, <clears throat> so high. And, um, you know, we came down here, we knew people down here. I was like, okay, this is, this is what we're going to do. The cost of living, it's like half down here, what it was up there. And it, it's, I really love it. I've, my people are down here. It reminds me of the East Bay back in the day. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funky. It's funky in good ways and in bad ways. And I think you, you probably need both of those things to, to work, you I know? Think so, yeah. Um, Do you have guys that I you mean, play I, with in your, in your current band that live there? Is that part of the... No, no, okay. I don't actually. Um, but that could, could change as well. Um, yeah. You know, uh, there is a guy down here who's going to... I'm about to record actually with Lucy um, Woodward and Doug Belote, who's a great New Orleans drummer. And there's a guy down here named Deshaun Hickman who's a great uh, sacred steel player. I think you would really dig him. He's Ooh. really lyrical, uh, tasteful player. And he's going to be a guest on our record. Um, so, but, but, you know, what it's allowed me to do is... is you know, freeing up space in my brain for one, because I'm not on this thing where, you know, I mean, maybe I'm known to some people, but I'm still a musician, which means it, it's not easy to make that mortgage payment every month, you know? Yeah, man. So, yeah. so, you know, now that we have a more uh, reasonable kind of standard of living, I'm able to, you know, uh, be a part of a, a space in Greensboro where I can present music that people down here aren't going to get because they don't have my Rolodex, you know, and right. I can also take a lot of time to really help the, the younger players, um, realize what, what they want to do. And you know, yeah, that, yeah. that whole adage of, uh, you don't know what you don't know. Well, I'm now I can be here and I can use whatever expertise I have to help these young people out, which is ultimately, kind of what I feel like I should be doing, you know, I mean, uh -huh. recently I had the, you know, I brought Bobby Previtt down and he did his voodoo orchestra thing where he gets, you know, 10 nice. or 12 yeah. local musicians Locals. and does the bitches, right. The, right. Does the bitches brew thing. Yeah. I've heard about that. Never seen it, but. Oh, it's amazing. You know, we had everything in this group from a 18 year old young lady playing baritone saxophone to a 70 year old 
local R&B stalwart on the bass, you know, and um, everybody in between from all walks of life and all levels. And the the first day, you know, just to give you an idea of just how magical that kind of thing, like the first day we rehearsed and Bobby's pretty much a genius, man, in terms of how he how he sees landscapes of music, how he sees what people bring to the music, how he directs them while he's playing drums. He's a force, you know, and the first day of rehearsal, I was like, okay, this is going to be kind of hard. You know, second day of rehearsal was like, man, something happened to these people. This actually sounds pretty good. Third day of rehearsal. I was like, man, these guys are kind of getting it, you know? And then when we did the gig, they just hit it out of the park. Everyone played to a higher level that than I think they even thought they could play to, you know? Are some of the people like totally out of their out of their comfort zone too? Absolutely. I don't yeah, think anyone okay. is in their comfort zone. I mean, <laughs> you know, we had this guy that I, I'm kind of working with, this guy Dante. He's like a young hip hop kind of producer. I mean, I hate to use that term, but I'm an old guy, so I guess I do. Sure. And um and I said, man, you want to come in with your MPC and make some soundscapes and, and improvise? You know, I'll, I'll hook you up with Bobby. So Bobby talked to him a little while and it changed his kid's life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he was really one of the best improvisers on the stage. Who knew? Wow. You know what amazing. I mean? It was great. It was amazing. So kind of stuff like that uh, that I can do down here. Whereas when I was in the New York area, I was just hustling and spending, you know, three hours a day in my car trying to get to, right. you know, this thing or that thing. And it, it just didn't make sense for me anymore. Yeah. It really changes things when you don't have that hustle to, to live up to. Right. It, it really does, you know, and, and the fact is that I, you know, you know, you and I, we hustle for a living. We're on the road all the time, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's the hustle. And I, I feel like I, I wasn't making any money on gigs in New York city. I mean, right. it was such a hassle to get in and out of the city from where I lived that I just stopped taking gigs and the gigs paid so little, it didn't make sense. I mean, I get to the gig and I had already spent $30 in tolls and gas, you know, right. and that's just before, walking in the door. <laughs> yeah. And that's before you just uh, pump $15 into like a New York city parking meter, you know? Yeah. So it yeah. just didn't make sense for me anymore. And I, I aged out of it, you know, and I just felt like if I'm going to make all my money on the road, why am I pouring it into this economy here? You know, I'm just, running up the down escalator every day. It doesn't make any sense for someone. And Hey, it freed, I left and it hopefully freed up a space for some ambitious 23 year old to come there. Yeah, you know? man. They need it. They need the space. Yeah. <laughs> so lately you've been doing a bunch of work with this group that I saw, like I saw you guys at that festival in Arkansas, the, the um, Fayetteville Roots Fest. And that was amazing. Oh yeah. That was a very early incarnation. We have, have developed quite a bit. So who's the, who's the latest? So Lucy Woodward is somebody you've been, she's a great singer that you've been playing with a bunch. Tell me, where did you meet her and what do you like about playing with her? Well, you know, I, um, we ended up connecting because I did this record with a young woman uh, from Jalapa, Mexico. Yeah, that, you gave me that record. It's killer. Oh, yeah, with Silvana, right on. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. Silvana, yeah, Silvana Estrada. And, um... A friend of mine, um, Chris Finney, great uh, sound guy from New Orleans, we went down there. She was like in my quote unquote class at like this big jazz kind of festival slash school in in uh, Guadalajara. And I was like, man, you're good. You know, they wanted her to do this jazz stuff. And she brought out, I said, well, what what do you guys do? Like who who has songs here, you know, in, in this combo group? 
and and you know they were like we want you to play uh you know the the directors were like they need to have a blues a standard and a bebop head ready for this concert i was like okay so he closed the door and i was like, and i was like okay wait a minute do you guys really want to do that? I mean, you're Mexican. I know there's some great Mexican music and you probably have some original music. So let's do that instead. You know, she was like 19 at the time, really a girl, a Silvana. They go, Silvana's got songs. And she played the quattro and sang these amazing songs that were like really interesting, kind of like jazz harmonic influenced, but like Southern Mexican folkloric original songs, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is the shit right there. Forget all this other stuff. That's what we're going to do, you know? Yeah. And um, so we went, we went, we did this thing. Well, I went down and recorded her at her parents' place and her parents are amazing people. They're luthiers. They make the whole violin family. Right. Oh, and wow. um, really cool. They let us use their workshop to record in. So we recorded her down there. And, you know, you know, I wanted to then tour that record with uh, she and, and a percussionist. And um, what ended up happening, you know, we had to go through this visa process. And at the moment, it's just not the best uh, climate for, for culture so in, in, in coming into this country, you know, fill in the blanks. Right. So yeah. I ended up spending like five grand trying to get this visa. And it was just a work visa for a tour, uh, two tours, right? Not for her oh to move God. here. Yeah. Denied twice. And the second Ugh. time we were denied the like two days before, Ugh. yeah, two days before the tour. Um, and I was kind of, yeah, it was, it was wrong. And, you know, I just, I felt absolutely awful for her too. Cause she's just such a positive uh, person, you know? Um, and, you know, so two things I had to, you know, tell Silvana, well, they canceled our tour. Um, you know, you're not welcome in this country, apparently. Yeah. I had to find a singer, you know, and, um, you know, at the last, you know, minute, um, you know, through friends, like in that snarky puppy world and, uh, my friend, Andy Hurwitz, who used to run, uh, why am I rope dope records? Uh, oh, yeah. and, uh, they said, Oh, you know, Lucy's, Lucy's a, she's a go-getter, but once you give her a call, she's really cool too. So we ended up playing this one tour. We really hit it off. She's got like work ethic for days, zero singer, diva, anything. Perfect. She can stay in the van as long as anyone else. And she can have a hundred. <laughs> I've seen it, man. She can have a 102 degree fever and coughing up like welcome mats of phlegm and go on the stage and crush it it's a great partnership, you know, and we also made early on, we both have long kind of careers doing original music and we kind of just made a deal. Like we're not going to do any original stuff. It's just going to be weird covers, you know? Yeah. And the, the, the song selection is super cool. Like you're, you're doing like, uh, on the new record, there's like blind Willie Johnson, uh, that animals tune, uh, don't let yeah. me misunderstood. We do Terrence, Trent Darby, Bessie Smith, you know? Right. Who's, are, are you guys both just sort of like shooting tunes around and is that how you come up with it or? Exactly. We just see what okay. works on the road and then record it, you know? Yeah. Sorry. But anyway, long story short, but the Silvana thing, she, it is, there is a happy ending to it because she got huge in the Latin world now. So she does oh. these mass great tours in South America uh, and, you know, Central America and Spain, she's doing great. So I couldn't be more proud of her and she's really kicking some serious ass. So, oh man. So cool. all's well that ends well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. On this last record with Lucy Woodward, maybe 
before we dive into to your your early stuff and your technique, tell me about how you're recording now. Like when you go in to make a record, you know, like everybody else, you're probably doing it pretty down and dirty and quickly, right? Like who has budgets to sit there in the studio to mess around for for weeks on end? So yeah. do you guys just do you guys just set up and play? And you've been playing so much on the road that it just comes together quickly, or is there some process of arrangement and 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 something that happens in the studio that's different from the live thing? Uh, man, no, it's pretty, the only thing that happens is, um, she'll do like a vocal with us and then do some comps on top of that and, and, you know, comp together, uh, kind of the ultimate take for her. Right. But yeah. for me and Doug below a uh, great drummer, I mean, I got to tell you, man, I would say probably if you listen to my stuff, 90% of it are the first take, you yeah. know? Um, and it's not because it, they're technically better or there's better playing in it or I am so great because I can do it on the first take. It's just that I'm in that, you're in that state. I'm sure you've experienced this too. You're in that state where you're not overthinking it. You're not sabotaging yourself. You're not playing, you're not getting bored. You know what I mean? Um, And uh, you know, so basically that's probably how it'll go down. But most, I mean, I try, Basically, you know, we make our living playing live music, you know, so yeah, yeah. I, I want whatever and I have always wanted whatever I do to be able to just like roll up and be like, here's the record, you know, um, and, 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 you know, I, I, I don't, I mean, honestly, man, I pretty much don't even do any fixes unless it's really egregiously like counter clave or, or some real horrible clam or something like that that just ruins the take. Otherwise, I just leave it in there, you know? Yeah, because a, a lot of the time, I mean, uh, like I'm I'm doing a different thing than you are, but like I know that feeling of like having, you know, that energy and the, the mystique of a first take and and there may be some imperfections that you think at the time suck, but then listening back to it, especially I find after you listen to it two or three times and you realize that's some of the coolest shit that you played, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's just like, when you're, when you're, you know, I remember when I was doing this week, all these weekly gigs in San Francisco, you know, but one in particular with Scott Amendola and Kenny Brooks was more of a kind of a jazz gig. And I got one of those dat Sony dat Walkmans. Remember those things, you know? Oh yeah. And, um, and I started recording the gigs. Right. And I was just like, and I would think, you know, oh man, that gig sucked, man. We were so, (laughs) we were so sad. That was so that was no energy, man. What's up with that gig? And then the other, you, you have a gig where you're like, man, that was amazing, man. We really just, you know, we really just like, you know, killed everyone. That was incredible. And then you listen to him back and you're like, actually the one you thought sucked was really good because totally. you were actually in it and playing yeah. and it's, it's musical. And then the one you thought was amazing was just super like steroidal machismo overplaying <laughs> and rushing. You know what I mean? Rushing, so yeah, totally. It, it, it's like, it's that same thing, you know? It's, yeah. It's, uh, that adrenaline will, will mess with your brain every time. It really will. Yeah, totally. Like, it was amazing. It's like, no, it was not amazing, actually. It was fast. <laughs> it was fast, and it was hard, <laughs> and it was intense. But yeah. was it musical? I, I don't know. I guess we'll have to leave that up to you, you know? Okay, so, so when you do a, a tune, say, like, pick any tune off the new record... How much of it for you, like how much of a process is there for you of like discovering the tune and figuring out your own arrangement? Like I, I, I'm sure that what you do is at least half of it improvised, but there must be some skeleton of 
the tune that you have to sit there and like work out. What's the process like for you for that now? Like, do you do you sit there working stuff out on your own or is it just like you kind of quickly learn a tune and then just take it to the band and, and go from there? Well, I mean, it depends, right? I mean, some things are just going to play themselves. Like you have a yeah. tune like music, 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 which is just the standard and you just play the damn chords and hopefully it's in time, you know? Other other tunes like that tune on there, the Blind Willie Johnson one, and the like that animals song and and um, sometimes those Blind Willie Johnson tunes are like the hardest ones, right? Yeah, man, totally, totally. You know, I mean, it's just you don't even want to listen to him anymore because you you'll never really be able to play, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but you know, and that Lucinda Williams tune is like to me it's just all about the drum beat and the groove and uh-huh. how does something groove and can i get into that state where the drummer and i are really making the music move you know what i yeah. mean and and getting into that zone where you see the landscape in front of you and you don't really have to add much you can do little variations from you know chorus to chorus just change stuff up a little bit um, yeah. but it's ultimately all about the groove and some of that stuff, like we were just that Lucinda Williams thing. We were just grooving Derek and I, Derek Phillips. Um, we were just grooving and I was just like, all right, fine. You know, let's uh, all right, press record. Here we go. This is the tune, you know? And that was it. It just happened right then and there. So sometimes it, uh-huh. it's just like that. And I, I, I find it's better to not work stuff out too, uh, stringently. So you have at least, uh, some space there to find something that's cooler than what you thought was cool. How do you record your instrument these days? Like, I do want to talk about your early setup and and how it's changed and evolved, but like, but now do you still run two amps or how how do you do it? Yeah. Usually, I mean, usually what I'll do is, um, I just run the bass side into a DI and then, and then I have this box. It's this cool thing that I've, I've had forever. And I think I probably made almost every record on it. It's by that company E Euphonic Audio. And I don't think they make it anymore, but it's called a rumble seat. And it has a like a 10 inch speaker on it. The the lid comes up, you put a microphone in there, you you close the lid with latches, and then you plug uh you you take a, a mic line out from that, and then you plug an amplifier in it and you sit on it when you play. So you get the percussion rumbling your butt while you're playing. So oh, you cool. really you really feel like you're playing. And if you plug a funky old tube amp into it, you can have a DI sound on one track for the bass and, and a funky old tube amp sound on the other. Yeah. And it kind of gets you into this cool kind of neighborhood. Right. Oh, um, cool. Does that go on the road with you? Does that rumble seat go? Oh no, go no, I would okay. love that would be dope, but no, man, I just bring a little bass amp and a little guitar amp on the road. Okay. I, I can't yeah. be bothered to have too much stuff, you know, cause I carry it all myself, you know? Um, and it ain't getting any lighter as I get older. That's for sure. <laughs> so you how know? does the, how does the instrument, um, split the, the two signals? Like, is it, is there a pickup on the bottom three strings and a different pickup on the top three? Is that what it is? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, for years I was using like two pickups, right? A bass set of pickups and a guitar pickup and, you know, separate for each one. But, you know, I'm part of this company now called hybrid guitars. Um, and we are using, um, Kent Armstrong is making a pickup, which is actually fucking great for this application. Cause if you have a, you, you know, there's a six string seven and an eight string and the pickup is actually two pickups in a pickup. So 
there's three bass and three guitar for mine, three bass and oh. four guitar for seven, three bass and five guitar for the eight. And the pickup sounds great because I don't know how he does it, but the problem I had before is, you know, I'd use P bass pickups and they were cool, but there was always insane crosstalk. Yeah. And then, um, Lawler, Jason Lawler, who's fantastic and they make incredible yeah. pickups was making me these little four string pickups. The problem, and as you know, he did his best, but you know, you're, you're not going to get a lot of grunt out of a four string pickup because you know, the windings, there's just less windings, right? Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So, you know, um, but this pickup seems to have, uh, solved all those problems, man. And are there two outputs then, or is it just yeah. one output? Mm -hmm. Okay. No, there's two. There's an output for the bass side and an output for the guitar side. Interesting. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And then there's a switch if you want, like, let's say if you wanted to use one of those instruments, like as a baritone guitar, or let's say you got the seven and you wanted to do it like George Van Epps kind of style tuning. Yeah. Then you just do this switch and it becomes mono and you can just go into one amp, you know? Oh, cool. Okay. Um, so it's pretty, pretty dope, man. Technology. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. So what's your, what's your main instrument these days? It's a seven string, right? No, it's this, this big six I've been playing. Oh, um, it's the big six. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really become my favorite. And I brought the seven out on occasion, but I'm just like, I don't feel like I'm gaming the way that I play now. I don't feel like I'm gaining anything by having that six string. And, and if anything, I'm kind of losing something, you know, uh -huh. because there's more to deal with. And I just feel like the, what I'm going for is kind of a deep groove and comping, you know, and playing a nice, good, solid feel. And, and, um, I feel like this big six kind of lets me do that better than the seven does, you know, and the, the seven would give you an extra low string or an extra high, no string? extra high an extra, extra high. high string. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you've essentially like tuning aside, you've essentially got the top three of a guitar capoed at the third fret and the top or in the bottom three of a bass capoed at the third fret. Is that the idea? Well, it would be like bottom three of a bass capoed at the third fret and ADG of a guitar capoed at the first, at the third fret. Oh, the ADG of a guitar. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about a, a bit about the evolution of, of your instruments. Cause this is sure. like, this is like a lifetime of fucking around with different, different setups, yeah, it's like right? Some poor like, bastard, it's, it's like a lifetime of some poor, poor bastard took a wrong turn and could not find his way back, you know? <laughs> okay, so take me back to like the very beginning. You told me you were playing a lot of upright bass. Were you playing a lot of guitar too? Just regular guitar? Yeah, well, you know, when I was on the street, I met these guys um, in Paris and they're like, hey, do you want to, and you know, I was just trying to figure it out there, you know? And these, I met these guys and they're like, Hey man, you're pretty good. Do you want to come to, um, Zurich Switzerland with us and make some real money? And I was like, Oh, okay. And they're like, okay, meet us tomorrow. You know, Gal to Nord. And I was like, okay, uh, sounds good. And they go, but we need you to play acoustic bass. And I was like, Oh, I really haven't played much acoustic bass <laughs> in my head. I was like, any, <laughs> acoustic bass. Like, it's okay. You know, it, 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 and you have to sing. Like, I was like, okay, well, I can kind of, I can sing, you know? Um, uh -huh. so, you know, thankfully, I guess I have a good enough ear that I was okay on acoustic bass, but you know, it was like met them at the station with like a K bass with action that like you could actually like put a guitar under the bass if you needed to, you know what oh I mean? Oh my God. Yeah. And, and I was just like, okay, 
I need to figure out how to play everything without going out of first position (laughs) 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 and using the E string as little as possible. Right. Right. Um, This is an upright bass you're talking about, right? Upright bass. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and you know, I had to carry this thing around. Um, and, uh, but you know, I think I did that for like, I don't know, it wasn't that long. I just eventually got really sick of carrying it around more than anything else. So with these guys, were you, were you playing standards or was it like pop tunes or like what kind of music was it? It was a bunch. It was like vaudeville kind of stuff. Cause you had to have, uh. um, dance moves and you had to have, uh, <laughs> vocal harmonies. Otherwise I learned a lot about playing on the street, you know, I bet. I you bet. had to have dance. If you had, well, for one thing, if you're just out there with a guitar, like we used to call this, like the strumming junkie thing, you know, if uh-huh. you're like strumming song and you're singing Bob Dylan tunes, you maybe will get five or six people stopping. Right. Okay. Um, if you have two or three people and you have a few instruments and you're playing and singing, singing like pop songs, standards, whatever in harmonies, uh-huh. you're getting like 30 or 40 people are going to stop. Right. Okay. If you, the second you get an acoustic bass, you double the people stopping just cause it's such a ridiculous looking instrument. Everyone <laughs> wants to stop, you know? And, um, so if you have an acoustic bass background vo- and you have singing, everyone's singing, um, and you do songs, they know, well, you could get 70 or 80 people stopping. If you put a few ridiculous choreographed dance moves into it, then the, the fucking <laughs> world is your oyster, you know? Um, and so, you know, I learned a lot. Of, I learned probably more about the music business from, from uh-huh. the lowest rung of it, playing on the street, you know? And, you know, jazz was what we always wanted to play, you know? And, and I would want to get my guitar out and play solo stuff and all this Joe Pass and Tuck Andrews stuff I was working on, but nobody would stop. That kind of stuff is so subtle and it probably just doesn't carry, like, you got to bash shit out when you're playing on the street, right? Let, I, lear- I learned yeah. that a bit from from Bob Brosman playing with him. Like, his whole thing was, like, street learned and it's, like, about projection and volume. Dude, you're so right. And it and, and the funny thing about it, though, Steve, is it's not even, even, it's projection and volume, but it's more, it's more the projection kind of metaphysically and spiritually yeah you know it's the projection of your will to play the music and you know i know when i hear street musicians or people who were street musicians i can kind of tell i mean i don't want to want to have to do a test and fail it and feel like an idiot but i can kind of tell that they've been through that kind of training you know yeah and you know, I feel like when I look back on it, I was really lucky to have had that experience because I was a street musician because I couldn't afford to go to music school, you know? And um, tell me why Paris? Like, how did you end up playing on the streets in Paris? What's the, what the hell is that all about? Well, so I went to high school with a guy named um, Thomas Holier, and he was a good friend of mine, still is. He, he um, his sister, he came from France and was, you know, uh, his dad worked in the States. So, so we hung a lot in high school and then I was, you know, kind of floundering after high school and, and playing a lot and practicing a lot. And he was like, ma'am, why don't you people play on the street there? Why don't you save up money for a plane ticket and you can stay at my sister's place um, for a month. And I was like, okay. So I saved up my money (laughs) from working jobs, you know, terrible jobs. And, um, and I went there and he stayed with his sister for a month. And then when, when the month was over, I just stayed, you know, 
um, lived on the streets a lot, honestly, um, but met incredible people who are still my friends to this day. And, you know, I was there for three years and, um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. I wouldn't trade, you know what I mean? I got really lucky. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah, you had to run from the police with an acoustic bass. Yeah, you'd have to take <laughs> the train station. Yeah, you know, you'd have to. But, you know, as an American who grew up in, like, the East Bay, yeah. you know, and uh, you go to a place like Paris or Zurich, and you are the criminal element. You're not afraid of anybody, you right. know? Like, <laughs> you know, so it wasn't a problem. And, you know, I learned how to speak a couple languages passively well. And, uh -huh. and you know, I learned how to play like you say, with that kind of more tough projection kind of oriented mentality, you know? And so were you playing largely upright bass the whole time you were there? Oh, no, no, no. Thankfully, that didn't last more than three or four months. I would have died, okay. man. My yeah. hands were like hamburger. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> awful. It was awful, you know? Um, and then basically I got you know, I, I kind of ended up uh, playing with different people and, and playing guitar, you know. Okay, okay. And were you playing in clubs and stuff too, or was it just streets? You would play some little clubs, but um, mostly you, the way it would work is you'd play pitches, we called them, where you would just set up and you'd do your, like, five-song thing. Yeah. And um, then, because if you were in a place like Switzerland where they had money, and, you know, we were, we were just a, a, a weird kind of, window into weirdness for them you know mm -hmm. sure. and that you would have people come up to you hey would you guys play our party would you play our this that the other thing and so we would do all these gigs during the day all these pitches during the day like in zurich or basel or geneva or whatever and then at night we would be doing these kind of private parties and we did okay. some weird shit man we did really? some weird shit played some party for all these like crazy wealthy people out in the country and they were all wearing diapers and some guy, <laughs> the guest of honor parachuted out of a plane and diapers. Ah, I was weird, man. Wow. And then we played some, we played some weird parties for you like, you can't make that shit up, man. No, no, it was so out. It was so out. Money is crazy, man. Yep. yep. But, um, everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. But it was an amazing experience, and, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And so were you starting to, to think about having the extended range and playing bass lines and guitar at the same time at that point, or not yet? Yeah, I was, and I was doing it in all of my spare time. I, I would do that, and I would take a singer aside and be like, hey, let's try to do this song, or 
you know, because I was really, you know, back then it was cassette tapes. Right. And, yep. and, you know, I had a cassette tape of that Tuck and Patty first record. Uh -huh. Um, and I had a couple cassettes of like Joe pass uh -huh. and, um, and I was determined to learn how to do that stuff. You have to figure it all out yourself. Like, well, what is the tuning? How, how yeah. does, and you're sitting there with this tape, stretching it out day after day, <laughs> trying to figure out how the hell, what, how does this work at all? Whereas now you're just like, you go on YouTube and there's 30 people showing you how to do it. You exactly. Know? Yeah. So you, you keep mentioning Tuck Andrus and Joe Pass. Were they the big ones for you? Were those the, the people that were like the guiding lights of like that kind of guitar playing and, and phrasing and stuff? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, at that point in my life, I was like 20 years old and, and, um, you know, to me that way, and I didn't really, you know, I took guitar lessons from Joe Satriani. I don't know if, you know, um, I because didn't know everyone, that. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone in Berkeley took guitar lessons from him. Right. Really? Everybody. Before he was famous or was he still teaching after? Oh, this was way before. I mean, he was just Joe, you okay. know, and he, yeah. But not just Joe, he scared the living shit out of everybody because, you know, he was so good and he knew his shit. Yeah. And, you know, this is like the late 70s, right? Okay. And, okay. and early 80s. I mean, I, you know, my mom repaired guitars at, and there were two guitar stores at that time. And you have to understand that Berkeley at that time bears no resemblance to the Berkeley of today. None whatsoever. It was an entirely different universe. In what way? I mean, you'd, you'd have a hard time finding a dad anywhere <laughs> to begin <laughs> with, you know, I mean, okay. they were there, but they were, they were definitely in the minority, you know? Um, yeah. and it was just wild and woolly. And, and I, I mean, you know, there, there were, you know, you could have a shop that sold bongs and you could have a shop that sold like succulents, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> think about the cost benefit analysis <laughs> of that today, you know? Um, but, it, but, but honestly, all kidding aside, it, in, in retrospect, it was a beautiful culture because, you know, it was quote unquote diverse and multicultural before those were terms or yeah. things people used to, to sell sweaters in real estate, you know, right, and school right. districts. Um, we were the place where if you didn't fit in anywhere else and, you know, you had a quote unquote mixed marriage or, you know, your, your, your partner happened to be the same sex. Well, that's where you moved at that time. And so we had everything there, anything you, any kind of music, any kind of culture, you could want people from all over the world. That's where they all kind of washed up and, and ended up making lives for themselves. And, right. and we were the children of those people, you know? Right. Um, but you know, I mean, I grew up in between two guitar stores. One was Subway Guitars, who I'm sure you know, Fat Dog, yeah, you know, yeah. and and my mom worked repairing guitars at Fat Dog's place. And then the other guitar wow. store was less than a mile away. It was called Secondhand Guitars. And it was owned by a guy named Jim Larson, um, who was involved with that ESP guitar company. Oh, yeah. Um, and he that was more of the more modern kind of shop. Right. So that. Yeah. And Joe. Uh, taught in a little tiny room in the back that had no window in it. And he'd be in there Crazy. like 10 hours a day teaching kids yeah. one after the other with no, no, he always had the same amount of enthusiasm and depth with whoever he was teaching, you know? So what, what kind of shit did you learn from Satriani? Well, you know, 
I, I got to be honest, when I went in there, I, I was a bit of a problem, you know, and I think <laughs> the reason why, you know, I was running the streets like all the other kids of my generation at that time in Berkeley, yeah. um, getting into lots of trouble, you know, um, and but I played guitar and I was pretty good, you know, um, yeah. but, you know, I needed some guidance. And, and um, since my mom worked there, she was like, look, can you deal with my kid, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that I learned from him is I think the thing that everyone learned from him because everybody took from him. If really? you were the heavy metal guy, if you were the blues guy, if you were the gospel guitar player, you took lessons from him because he was the best guy at that time at being able to get around on the guitar yeah. really effortlessly and also being able to show people how to do that without an agenda. He didn't have an agenda uh, musically. He just wanted you to get good. He just wanted you to get good. And we did get good. And that's why, like, when I went to Europe, I was like, people were like, hey, how do you do that? I'm like, well, how do you do what? This? I mean, everybody does this, right? You know, like, <laughs> you, everyone knows how to do this, you know, because everyone in Berkeley did know how to do that. Because of Joe. Yeah. You know, so anyway, you know, the long story short is, is I, I grew up around in this real guitar culture and a, a lot of that stuff. But you know, it, even though we had the Berkeley high jazz band and, you know, I went to school with, with like Dave Ellis and Josh Redman and really? the, the older people like Peter Applebaum and, and, you know, Will Bernard, Steve Bernstein, Rodney Franklin, Benny Green, Lenny Pickett. They all went through that program. Wow. I was just not, I couldn't, I was like the third string. I didn't even make it in the jazz band, you know? Really? Um, because, you know, my reading was terrible. I had no, like, reading education. I was, like, the typical guitar player. So, like, I was Learned 16, and I was playing all these gigs with, like, blues bands and uh -huh. soul bands and rockabilly bands. But I couldn't read a note, right. you know. I um, and You know what I'm saying? So yeah, it, of it was, uh, but, but anyway, so when I later on discovered, like, the Joe Pass thing and the Tuck Andrews thing, it was, it was a real, uh, I kind of knew the direction I wanted to, to go. Okay. And so how did that affect your instrument? Like at what point did you start tinkering with the idea of expanding the range of the guitar? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think I just wanted to be self-sufficient and I, I think it's also just like a, you know, I don't know. I, I think I'm just maybe genetically predisposed to wanting to make shit as difficult as possible on myself <laughs> maybe it's it's something yeah. buried deep in in the jewish side of my dna you know I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure but um but you know what happened was i was really getting pretty good at that and i um at subway guitars there was a guy i remember his, his name was jorg kulo um i think he was from germany or uh, somewhere over there i can't remember but they had this old Vega arch top and fat dog was like, look, man, I'll sell you this for like three, 400 bucks. It's a really good guitar. And, um, Jorg, it has a wide neck. Jorg can make it into a seven string. Cause I really wanted a seven. I really wanted a low string, right? Okay. I really wanted to have that ability. And, um, like, a, like you were after like a low B or something. What did you want? A low there? A. I wanted low a low okay. A. I wanted that Van Epps tuning. And I saw, you know, there was like one, Van Epps Gretsch guitar for sale in LA at that time for like $2,000. I mean, we're talking like 1989, $2,000 to a 23 year old was like, or 22 year old was like, fortune. Nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That ain't going to happen. You know? So, um, they made this guitar for me and I actually picked it up the day after the, um, the San Francisco earthquake. 
Um, wow. The day after the big earthquake. And it was fine. The guitar was fine. And the guy who worked at the store at the time was Michael Franti. I, he's the guy who actually sold me the guitar. Really? That's yeah, hilarious. Yeah. And, okay. and later on, um, after that, I worked at Subway Guitars teaching. Uh-huh. Alex Skolnick worked there teaching. Wow. Michael worked there repairing basses. And Alvin Youngblood Hart was the amplifier tech. We were all there all the time. Right. Yeah, I knew I knew uh, Alvin worked there too. That's amazing. Yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is crazy. You got your hands on the seven string and did that satisfy you? Like was that what you were after? Oh man, it was more I didn't know what the hell was going on, but you know, I I just got deeply in the shed, you know, and I was yeah. practicing. You know, I had a job moving uh used office furniture and any other time i had no social life man i I lived in a garage behind a friend of mine's house i could care less i was practicing all day trying to trying to figure this thing out and um then i started playing gigs with michael franti actually as just a duo he'd do this like spoken word and i would do my kind of version of tuck andrus on this weird seven string i was working on because you were guitar store buddies Exactly. Yeah. And he was like, look, man, I, I write poetry. I was like, wow, you're really good at that, man. Let's, you know, I'm, I'm down to do this thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and I just kept working and working and working like, you know, you know how it is, man, when mm-hmm. you get the bug, you, you can't put it down, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was a blessing, man, really. I, it, you know, I think about those times, you know, to be young, young person getting really excited and focused on something where you feel like, the sky's the limit, you know? Yeah, I remember that that time so well too, where like you could you could measurably get better every day and and you know, like it's been a while since I've I've felt like that. But when I started playing pedal steel, I had that feeling again of like, wow, I'm like twice as good now as I was this morning. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, dude, if you could bottle that and sell it, I know, you, right? You, uh, they parade you <laughs> through the streets, you know. I know. <laughs> The early stuff of yours, like the the early trio records, um, it's very like your tone is very organ like, like you're playing through a Leslie. I I don't know if it actually was a Leslie or if it was some sort of pedal, but um, was that was that like a big revelation for you? Was like I want I want to sound like an organ player. Yeah, because I always loved Hammond organ, and and I always um, was gra- gravitated towards that, and also because you know Hammond organ was for me was kind of like at least in a tangential way was how I kind of learned the idea of how to play some type of a comp thing with a bass line going simultaneously, you know? So I just liked that sound too. And, and uh, I also felt it was, it, it just was, I don't know. I just gravitated towards it. I mean, um, and actually the funny thing is that that sa- what you're hearing on that early stuff is, uh, is a Mutron uh, phase pedal. Really? And I just, found it in a guitar store and started playing with it. And I was like, Oh, that sounds like an organ. Cool. Yeah, and I yeah. got it. And, and that was my pedal for a long, I still actually have that thing. Oddly enough, you know? Wow. Um, yeah, but it, it really sounds good, you know, um, for that stuff. And, and is the guitar you're playing on those, on the first trio record? Is that, um, is that the, the seven string that you, you've got at subway or is it, by that point, had you got a custom guitar or something? Well, yeah, both because I had most of the, most of the thing was uh, Ralph Novak made me kind of my first fan fret seven string guitar. Oh, and, um, is, is he a builder from, from Berkeley? Is that his? Yeah. And he was, he was a contemporary of my mom's. Right. Okay. And, and he, 
Ralph came up. I mean, this is all like, you know, if you read that outliers thing, I, I read that book and I was like, man, I was one of these lucky motherfuckers, you know, cause I <laughs> met all the right people at the right time. Right. Yeah. So Ralph, Ralph was the guy that came up with the whole fan fret thing in terms of, was he one of those Alembic guys? No, I don't okay. think so. He, he had his own thing in the Bay area doing repairs. And then he came up with this fan fret thing and, uh, you know, it really, really worked for me for what I was trying to do because I had so much range in, in such a, a small instrument, you know? Um, so when you get into the fan frets, does that mean that you have to like relearn positions? And I don't, I've never played a fan fret guitar. Like how drastic. Nah, man, it, it just depends how much of a, a, a fan there is. Like, I think those early guitars I had, it was maybe like 27 and a half to 25 or something. Two and a half inches is not like a big deal. Actually. Across the neck of the... Yeah, what I'm using now is like 29 to 25 and a half. That's, that takes a little getting used to, you know? Okay. But, you know, it looks way weirder from afar than it does when you're actually playing it. Really? Your hands just, yeah, you wouldn't have any problem. Within five <laughs> minutes, you would, you would be, it would I'm be no sure problem. I'm not sure about that, Charlie. <laughs> no, no, I guarantee it. Honestly, no, for real. You, you would just, you would be surprised at how easy it is. You know, okay. it's mostly just a scale length thing. Cause as you, you know, as you go lower, you need more surface area to generate something that sounds like a kind of reasonably convincing bass, you know? Yeah, so, I get that. I, but I mean, just the, the physicality of having to get your finger in a, in the spot, the sweet spot must've been a, a learning curve, right? Or is it so subtle that you're right about the sweet spot. And, and you know, what's even crazier is that, you know, if somebody had told me how hard this was at the time I was starting it, I might've just been like, Oh, I'm not sure, you know, <laughs> but, um, it's even compounded because when you're doing all this counterpoint, uh -huh. you're, everything is twice as hard or three times as hard. A lot of times harder to play in tune, yeah. um, harder to play in time. All this stuff becomes that much more difficult, you know, right. but, uh, but you know, man, it's, it's what you do isn't easy either. So, you know, it's, 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 it, you kind of pick your poison and learn the parameters and hopefully you don't step in any bear traps, you know? So in those early recordings, were you, were you playing through two amps yet or were, was it still just pretty straight ahead guitar setup? No, I definitely had a bass amp and a guitar amp. Oh, okay. And how are you splitting the signal? Well, the, I had um, two pickups, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, no. the pickup on that uh, seven string that I had made by Ralph was had a Bartolini pickup in it that did something similar to the um, Kent Armstrong pickup. So it was split three and four. Some sort of crossover inside the pickup? Yeah, it was split, you know, it was okay. like two pickups inside one pickup kind of okay. yeah. vibe. So you did you did a couple of, of records with that first trio. The first time I saw you was with um TJ Kirk. And that I think that was after those the trio records, right? Um Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So that the concept of that band was it was three guitar players, right? And then and you were doing right. all James Brown, Thelonious Monk and, and Roland Kirk stuff. Exactly. Whose wacky idea was that? Well, it was, I mean, we just hung out. We didn't even really play together. We were just friends that liked to hang out and, and, and maybe we played some duos here and there. We just wanted to exchange kind of whatever knowledge we had. John Schott, who's great, he made a record recently 
that is really great a trio uh record i hate to use the word jazz because it's such a ridiculous concept in 2020 but um it's he and the drummer and an acoustic bass player and he really is playing some great improvised jazz you know i mean it's really good the songs are great his concept is deep and you know, go check it out. The guy's just like a, a monster. We used to call him Encyclopedia because he just, back then, he knew everything about every music possible. You know, he would go from talking about stuff that I learned all this from him. I didn't know who Schoenberg was or Ives. I thought Ives was Burl Ives. I had no idea any of, <laughs> any of this stuff. Yeah. None of it. He'd go from talking about that to talking about Blind Willie Johnson to talking about Sir Mix-a-Lot with the same... Uh, with the same knowledge and the same respect. And then Will Bernard, who can, you know, it, it, it's, he can read anything. I mean, he play any style and, and he has his own style, wrote great music. And, you know, both those guys were really schooled and I, and I really was not. So to me, that was a real, um, a real educational experience, you know, and we just hung out and we were just like, man, we should just make a band just to fuck around a little bit. And yeah. we made this band and it, it kind of, you know, oddly enough, it kind of became like a cult kind of cult thing that certain people really, really wanted to hear, you know? Oh, yeah. Like all my guitar playing friends up in Vancouver, like we were, I was in Vancouver at the time. That's where I grew up and started playing. And people were obsessed with those TJ Kirk records. That was a big thing, you know? <laughs> really? Totally. Oh, yeah, man, for I, sure. I apologize. And I, I wish I had played better. Looking back on it now, it's really hard to know who's doing what on those records. Like you're pretty Leslie organ oriented and Will Bernard's sort of yeah. snaking around in, in, in the in the lead guitar department. And what is jo what's John's role in that in that band? Well, John, I think John really wrote the probably if I'm not I think John wrote the majority of the arrangements okay. um for that stuff. And I mean John and Will you take an equal amount of solos of the solos i don't really take any solos unless it's a real simple thing uh -huh. so mostly if you hear bass in an organ sound that's me and the way we split the music up really was scott and i were a team and will and john were a team if there's any okay thing like that because those guys would would really scott and i were really the rhythm section and of yeah. course those guys played rhythm now, i'm not saying they didn't they 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 played great but um they had to learn all of those heads and they played lots of stuff in unison or harmonized. And, yeah. you know, so that's kind of how, how the, the division of labor was kind of broken up in that group, you know? And, and the Scott you were talking about is Scott Amendola and you've been playing yeah. with him for years and years and years now. So uh, was he, was he just kicking around the Bay area at the time? Like, was he just a drummer kind of your age that you hooked up with or? or yeah. Had... Yeah. We, we had a gig together with um, Kenny Brooks. We did this regular kind of jazz gig, you know. Uh -huh. And um, again, that was a learning thing for me because both Scott and Kenny had been to music school for a long time. So they really knew that jazz thing. And Scott comes from like a real kind of, um, you know, his grandfather is, is Ant uh, Anthony Gattuso. Did you know him? You ever get no. that? You ever get that record called Pioneers of Jazz Guitar? I don't think I know that. I know you know that record. You know it. It's got like a, all those Lonnie Johnson, Eddie oh. Lang duets. and. Well, yeah. I, know, I mean, I know all that stuff. Okay. So, you know, there's a tune on that record called Satan Takes a Holiday. 
Something like that. Uh, I'm losing my mind because I want to finish that phrase. <laughs> and I had that when I was visiting my father in New York. I actually had that record. And he had an old Martin guitar, so I learned to play that tune. Like, it was hard, man. I was like 19 yeah. or something, and it was just, that was a stretch, you know. And so when Scott and I were, we were neighbors, and, you know, we did that that kind of thing that, that dudes in their 20s do when they're trying to show their special sauce shit that they know that the other guy doesn't know and how much cooler it is kind of vibe, you know. Uh-huh. We were... He was playing these records. He's like, check the Schofield record out. I was like, cool. Cause I was really new to a lot of this stuff, you know? Yeah, and I was, was like, oh, yeah, wow. That's, that's dope. And I was like, well, man, check out this, check out this blind Blake record, you know? Mm-hmm. And he goes, okay, well look, man, that's cool. Check this, check this Pat Metheny record out. And I was like, oh man, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, well, you know, check out this West Montgomery or whatever. And then he, then he was like, well, check out this Bill Frizzell. I was like, all right this is cool, but I'm going to, I'm going to play my Trump card here. I was like, check this shit out. And I put that song on the Satan takes the holiday. And Scott was, Scott was like, yeah, that's my grandpa. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. And and so, yeah, I mean, Scott comes from that Italian, you know, Jersey Italian kind of jazz, big band drumming. And people don't know this about him because I don't think he wants anybody to know it. Um, He's probably one of the baddest big band drummers I've ever heard. I saw him, at some gig where there was this whole big band thing and the drummer flaked out and Scott was like a last minute replacement. He couldn't rehearse any of the tune. He did this gig. I think it was at the SF jazz festival and he read the chart, all of it down. Not one mistake. It was insane. Wow. You know, and he was also kind of embarrassed because he's like, yeah, that's where I come from, but I really don't want people to hear me playing music like that. (laughs) (laughs) He is a monster. There's no doubt. Yeah, man. Yeah. I love watching the two of you. I love that duo that you guys do. It's amazing. It's really fun, man, because we come from very different, very different worlds, you know, but we somehow managed to meet in the middle and create a a weird language from, from it, you know? Right, right. That also is like something that evolves when you play with somebody for 20 years, right? Like you guys yeah. known each other for, well, more than 20 years, I guess. But like, that's a thing that you can't, even with playing with great players, there's going to be something that you've got with somebody that you've been playing with for that long that's a little special and different, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's yeah. no getting around it, you know, um, for sure. And, and you develop a language, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. I mean, even like, you know, that trio that we were talking about with Jay Lane and Dave Ellis. I mean, I grew up with those guys, you know? Yeah. So, we're, so we were, we were teenagers. Dave Ellis and I used to play, you know, football on the street together, you right. know? Um, cool. Yeah. And, and so you, you have this deep, weird kind of music when you, you have that kind of connection with people, you know? Right, right. That format that you had a little later, I don't know what year it would have come up, but I think it was on the, when you did the Natty Dread project, which was awesome. That was another big one that, that 
that I remember a lot of Vancouver people anyway were really into. But that was probably wow. like late 90s. And you did the entire Natty Dread record instrumentally and also like with really cool different grooves. But that was a quartet with two sax players, right? Is that, am I remembering yeah. that right? Yeah. Yeah, that was me and Scott and Kenny Brooks and Calder Spanier. Uh, Calder's on alto and Kenny's on tenor. And was that your idea of just like a different format that you wanted to experiment with? I guess so. You know, Calder was my uh, street musician buddy, you know, and I learned an insane amount of, of music from him, you know, because huh. he kind of was like a genius level, one of these kind of genius level guys like, you know, Louis Cato or someone like that. Just crazy ear, can play anything and doesn't have any agenda or, or judgment, really. You know what I mean? He just yeah. wants to play good music, you know? So he came and was staying with us. I was just like, man, I got to get this guy in the band. It'll make my life a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. With the Natty Dread project, was that like, was that your idea to approach like remaking an entire record that's known so well to so many people? Oh, no, not at all, man. That was total Blue Note marketing. Oh, really? Spoke, you know? Oh, they came to you and they were like, hey, do this? Yeah, they were like, hey, can you make a record that's not in your contract cycle? It would be a special thing. We'd give you like super low amount of money to record it. And, um, you know, we're going to do this cover series and we're going to do a bunch of them. And so we, we did, they said, you can pick any record you want. Okay. Um, I said, okay, well, you know, it took us a minute, but we decided on that record just because, you know, wow, great record. Let's do this. Had you been playing some of those tunes before or was it just like out of the blue? Oh, out of the blue. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And we just, we just, I was just like, all right, let's do this in a few days and record it. Cause we got to get back on the road to, cause we were uh, supporting this record called ready set Shango at that point. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so we dude, we recorded that thing in like maybe two days and we uh -huh. did those arrangements. We played them a bunch of times in the Bay area and then we just went boom, boom, boom. And then that was it. We didn't even, we weren't even there for the mix Lee Townsend. And I think her name, Judy Clapp was the engineer. They just mixed it. Okay. You know, um, I don't even think we listened to it. I was just like, yeah, you're good. You know what you're doing. When you're done, just send it to the record company. We, we don't think much of this record anyway. You know, who knows, you know, what's wow. going to happen. You know, well, it was a hit in Vancouver. <laughs> well, it was dude, the crazy thing. It was a hit everywhere. Cause that music is so iconic, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and oddly enough, jazz people really hated it. Um, which was fine. But the good thing was like, I got a call from Earl Chinna Smith, you know, Mm -hmm. And telling me, man, we love that record down here. The Marley people love it. And Oh, wow. That's amazing. Toots, Toots and the Maytals played that on their bus for years. They loved really? the record. And I was just like, you know what? Thank you. You made, just made my, my fucking day. Because that's the kind of, that's the kind of like, uh, you know, affirmation that, that, that matters. He was like, look, we don't want to hear another Bob Marley cover done reggae. We don't no want to hear doubt. it. You had, yeah. He's like, you guys, whatever you did with this record, you guys had a deep respect for the music and, 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 and it shows. That's what comes across. It's like, you guys love the music and it's a big love and respect thing, but you don't fall into the trappings of any like sort of lame reggae cover cliches that, that right. You know, on the surface, it seems like, Oh, well th this is going to be like, a bunch of dudes playing shitty reggae grooves. It's not, it's like the opposite. Yeah, ouch. Ouch, <laughs> yeah. that would be painful. Yeah. You know, and the plus his songs are so strong and iconic. You don't, you can do them any way you want. Do them polka, yeah. you'd be good. Yeah, You're good, totally. you know. But um, the, what happened with that record was it became so, it came, became like our kind of biggest hit, you know. 
and we toured it for like man forever it felt like um really but the problem was you know touring those days was different uh, i wasn't getting paid a ton and i was paying everybody else because it was my band right oh, yeah. but i wasn't really getting paid so um it it ended up being this situation where we were on tour for like eight months i think Holy um shit. and and i didn't get any publishing money right because i didn't songs. write any of those songs right so i got back I got back to the Bay Area, and my wife was like, um, "What the hell, dude? dude? We gotta pay. We gotta pay rent." I'm like, "Okay, well, how much is in the account?" She goes, "Exactly the amount of of money we need to pay rent." <laughs> I was like, "Okay, well, we paid the rent," and then I was like, "Damn, I, I gotta get some gigs," and I had to sell some stuff. You know, I had this. I remember I had this like 1964 Fender Pro Reverb amp that I loved, and I was like, "I gotta sell this," you know. Oh, uh, and then I had to get uh, just a bunch of gigs just any old gigs, you know, and wow. all of a sudden I'm taking flack because I'm a big success, but I have no money at the same time. It's like, how only I could manage that. I tell you, <laughs> did you notice that? Like, was there a spike in your audiences though? At least like, were you getting more? People oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. Totally. And, and in all honesty, all of that hardcore touring we did made it possible for me in the really dark days, you know, after this latest recession to, to actually, kind of scrape by touring you know yeah yeah i didn't realize it was so bleak at that point it seemed like it seemed like you must have been making some good cash at that point but i guess uh... well i was but i was only a conduit for everybody else right <laughs> making lots of cash and spending it all on it on everybody else right yeah it just went right through <laughs> my hands faster than i than i could even see it you know oh my god um i wonder if we could talk about a couple of projects uh like sort of more studio projects um going back a ways, but, um, a couple of things that really stand out and there's the, the D'Angelo record that I'm really curious about. And I'm, I'm sure okay. people would love to hear about. Um, I don't know if you're sick of talking about that. I don't even know if anyone ever asked you about that, but there's that and, and the disposable heroes. Maybe we could start with that one. Cause you've already talked a bit about, um, meeting Michael Franti. And now that was one of my questions was like, how, you know, how would you have ended up with a guy like that? But, but now I know. So with, with yeah. disposable heroes, was that like, You'd, you'd been making records on your own and stuff at that point. So was it just something to do on the side or w did you decide like, Hey, I want to join a band and, and see where, see if I can go in that direction or how did that come about? Well, no, I hadn't made any records actually. I, I thought, I thought you'd already done a couple trio records. Yeah. So I had stopped being a street musician because I really wanted to go back to California and really, really learn how to play guitar a lot better, you uh -huh. know? Um, so you know, I found myself back in California, I had a job, I, I was teaching some guitar at Subway Guitars, and also I had a job working at a used furniture off, uh, warehouse, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> a used office furniture warehouse, uh, which was an intense job, and I, I learned a lot of, of stuff there. Okay. Um, but, um, but, you know, I, I was at Subway Guitars, I mean, this was like 1989, 1990, you know, and I was yeah. playing these duo gigs with Michael, and and then Michael was like, look, I, I'm getting a, I'm about to get a record deal with Island Records. Do you want to be in the band? And I said, well, you know, I'm not sure, man. Like I need to, <clears throat> excuse me, I need to, to keep practicing and I have this job. And he goes, well, how much does the job pay you? And I was like, it's like 400 bucks a week or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and he was like, okay, I'll pay you $500 a week to be on the road. <laughs> and, um, and back then that was a lot of money. You sure. Know? Um, and so I was like, all right, but you know, 
Michael, as brilliant as he is, and Rano, who was also a really great dancer and kind of a stage imagery guy, um, they weren't music people. Like, they didn't know music at all. I mean, they knew music to listen to and to mm-hmm. put on a show and, and to be performers. They were great performers, you know? Yeah, yeah. And Michael was a great writer. He wrote great lyrics and he had great ideas. But um, they weren't music people, so it was really hard. We had to rehearse forever. This, I guess what a lot of people go through, like the interminable, endless rehearsing of the set. And then when you had to change, if you were opening for someone, you had to change the set and rehearse the set again. But, you know, of course, in my mind, I was just like, fuck this lame ass shit, man. I want to go listen to West Montgomery and learn yeah, more yeah. Joe Pass. And I want to learn this, that and the other thing. You know, we were out on the road and we were opening for bands like Public Enemy and Gangstar. And Crazy. we were on the road with Arrested Development for a long time. And that's how I became pretty good friends with Dion Ferris. We were out on the road with Billy Bragg, actually, who was fantastic. Really? Um, and, uh, you know, and then, you know, the big, uh, the big thing, I know the hip hop world, right? I mean, and back then I was just like, yeah, I really just don't want to hear this music. This isn't important to me. Like, I want to go back and listen to Joe Pass. But then it's like, as I got older, because I was around that music and those people all the time, I began to realize how great it was, you know? Yeah. I was just like, man, I was so you know, pub, public enemy every night. Yeah, you were in ground zero of that shit, man. That's amazing. Yeah, and and then I remember one night I saw DJ Premier do this whole thing, and I was like, that is a bad motherfucker right there. And then I, then it changed my mind, you know what I right, mean? Right, right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, then we got the gig opening for U2 on that Zoo TV tour, you oh know? God, I forgot um, about that. That's crazy. And I kept trying to quit the band, but Michael <laughs> kept giving me a little more money here and a little more money there. Yeah. Um, and, and it was also really interesting because uh, Simone White, who was the drummer in the band, um, and I, you know, we were in a very different situation from Michael and Rano because they were the stars. We were just these guys, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was really, uh, you know, I have to thank them for giving me the opportunity to be a fly on the wall for that process. Um, and even after we did that YouTube tour, I learned a lot about how that music world works. And I realized I, I didn't want that and I didn't value that aspect of it, you know? Right, right. And, um, the, whole, and I also, the whole stardom bullshit thing. Yeah. And I just saw the unbelievable amount of stress that it put on Michael and that it put on Michael and Rano's relationship. And, and um, you know, and I didn't really have any chips in the skin of the game i could leave anytime i want and i did after that youtube tour i I quit i was just like i had enough you know okay um but it was a great education i not a musical education but uh, a music business education interesting and and you made that one record uh disposable heroes um what was the what was the first I think it's Hypocrisy is the greatest luxury, right? So what was the what was it. the Man, I can't believe you know that record, man. I thought my secret was uh was safe. <laughs> no, we I used to listen to that all the time. Uh Oh what, my god. What was the what was the recording like for that? Like were you guys you were you were super green in the studio obviously. Like Well, I'll go back in my mind. I'm trying to remember. It was done at a place called something razor something studios and it was on divisadero in san francisco okay and back then it was not the san francisco you would not recognize it i mean that was that was gnarly you get your ass shot on that street 
okay. you know. Yeah. Um, and so, but it was also the early days of kind of digital uh, sampling. And I mean, it's like 1989, 1990, maybe. Yeah, right. And the guy, his name was Mark Pistol, who was, he was in a group called Consolidated. I think they were called Consolidated. Um, and he really knew how to, to engineer all of that stuff with the samples and the, the, you know, sequencer and all that stuff. So a lot of it was sequenced, except I played like recorded bass and guitar and my instruments and vocal stuff and things like that on it. Did they have any input into that or were you just like somebody they didn't really know how to deal with? Um, no, they had, they gave me a lot of direction. You know, okay. because um, Michael, Michael, although he doesn't really know music, he really knows what he wants and he can find a language to express that to you, you know. Okay. And did you find did you find that it was satisfying for you musically or did you find that you had to like fit into a certain box that they were going for and you were kind of handcuffed to that? Oh, you know, definitely. I mean, somewhere in between the two, it, it was I was still learning how to play. So everything was the challenge, you know, Right, right. but it wasn't the, ch at the time it was not the challenge that I wanted, you know? Right. I get um, it. Yeah. So I was probably just an absolute drag for them to be around. And I apologize. <laughs> was it just the three of you on the road? Yeah, it was me, Michael, Rano and Simone, the drummer. And they wow. had like, dude, they had, they had tracks like, they had a dude. They had a thing that was like a road case that was the size of a refrigerator, and not a <laughs> small refrigerator, you know. And, and that, that thing probably had like had like a sixty fourth of an iPhone in it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it oh was always having problems. It was always freezing. It was always. But they were very. It was very. Um, raw and and they were really going for something it was really weird if you think about it you know yeah their thing was really fucking weird it's totally unlike anything else that was going on right yeah and the live shows were just nuts were they, they were just bizarre yeah i mean i was like the straight guy basically and it was like if you imagine the marx brothers it's almost the quote-unquote marx like Groucho and Karl Marx, you know, just all going off at the same time. And the dude, Rano had this, this thing he made out of old rims and metal pipes. And he took out a grinder and he would grind sparks at one point of the show. You know, wow. he yeah. had like a, a fog, uh, he had like an air raid siren he put on stage. <laughs> I mean, it Amazing. was insane. And Rano would, was like a crazy, dancer gymnast guy he climbed these massive structures and jump off and do flips and land perfectly and you know uh it was nuts and michael's energy level i mean michael's quite a presence he's like a really tall handsome dude and sure you know he he then you know he really really had a uh you know it was really cutting edge what what that group was doing yeah you man. know and so did you feel like it was just like a whole bunch of hype and bullshit like were people going bananas and you really just wanted to play like music for people that were listening was that sort of a conflict for you at the time yeah absolutely you yeah. know um but you know when you're young and you see people are like yeah 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 you know we love this you're like yeah i don't know <laughs> you know it, it's hard it was it, it, but it wasn't hard to leave because it just wasn't right and you know i needed to get away they needed to get a, away from me as much as i needed to get away from them 
they had imagination going crazy. And all I wanted to do was, was do really learn how to play, you know? Right. Yeah. That wasn't really high on their agenda. So I, okay. No. So I had the order wrong. So you went from that. That's where, when you started doing your trio records was after that. Well, yeah. And, and I quit that band and everyone was like, are you out of your mind? You just were on, <laughs> did you get fired? I'm like, I didn't get fired. I just quit. And, and I gave Michael, like I got Will Bernard a gig with Michael for a little while. And my okay. friend Keith MacArthur, I just like, I, I was just like, I no, I hooked him up. You know, I got people to play and it's just, just not do it. what I, sh you know, and they were like, you're crazy. You just ruined your career. I'm like, okay, well, fair enough. You know? And then I put that band together with Jay and Dave and it coincided with, uh, a movement in the Bay area where young people were able to buy clubs and afford them, um, to run them. And young people were coming to the clubs and it was, it was great. You know, I, I feel really lucky to have been a part of that experience as well, you know, for yeah, three the or 90s, four years. 90s Bay area was happening, man. It really was. Um, it was crazy, man. I had so many damn gigs. I uh, like, you know, I saw my calendars from that time. And it's like, I'm in the Bay Area. I mean, you're looking, you're talking like maybe a 40 mile radius. I had like 30 gigs a month and I wasn't that good. You know, I wasn't that good. My reading was garbage. It still isn't fantastic, but it was terrible. I was playing these crazy gigs that were way above my pay grade, you know, and, but I think you need that. I think you need the opportunity to. That's how you get good, right? Yeah. And, and I was terrified. I, mean, I was playing gigs with like Eddie Marshall, Eddie Marshall. I had no business getting on the stage. I had no business <laughs> setting his drums up for God's sake, let alone playing with him. Was Skerek there too at that, at that time? No, Skerek's a Seattle guy. He's always been a Seattle guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't meet him till much later. Oh, okay. Um, but you know, there, there were, you know, and, and the crazy thing is there weren't like enough musicians to play a lot of these gigs. So everybody was playing with everyone else. Like, there's a group called Alphabet Soup, which was doing what the Roots do, but probably five or six years earlier. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, it was a hip hop band with two MCs. And, you know, there would be a, a thing where, like, they couldn't get the tenor player for the day or the bass player or whatever. So you have a thing where you'd have, like, you know, Jay Lane on drums, Ben Goldberg on clarinet, and your Dred Scott on keyboards and these two guys rhyming. You know what I mean? It's just Amazing. like stuff like that because you would just get the best people. And, and in that way, it was actually a really great kind of melting pot because totally. you, would, you would find yourself. In, I mean, dude, I played like a, like, a, like a Jewish wedding with Ben Goldberg playing klezmer music. I mean, I don't know that shit from Adam, you yeah, know? Yeah. I, you know? <laughs> but, you just, but you say yes and you show up and do it, right? I mean, that's how a lot you of people yes got into it. You show up and you kind of <laughs> limp along, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's there's like a surprising amount of incredible musicians who like got good doing stuff like that. Yeah, I think you need you need the you need the opportunities, you know. Yeah. yeah. If you don't have the opportunities, you're not going to be able to get out of your bedroom. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you need the opportunities, man. You really do. Can you tell me a, a, a bit about uh that D'Angelo session for Voodoo? Like that that's um pretty widely regarded as one of the the great records of that. I mean, it's not even really a genre. I don't even know what to call that record, but, uh, and it's certainly a, a strange thing on your resume. How did that all come together? Well, um, you know, um, that came together because we, you remember that, um, bet on jazz, um, 
if you remember like the cable days, right back in like the early nineties or mid nineties, when, you know, if you wanted to see kind of music video, you'd go on cable TV and search around, right? Well, BET, yeah, BET had this bet on jazz. They were really smart and they were like, look, we got a studio here. Let's just film a lot of people playing and we'll have content and a, and a channel. Luckily, the group I had with Dave Ellis and, and Amendola and myself, we, we got on that. And, you know, Ramsey Lewis interviewed us and, and we played. I mean, it was like probably half an hour. And that thing, they didn't have a lot of content. So that thing just circled like an airplane at LaGuardia. You know what oh, I mean? Wow. It just went yeah. around and around and around. Perfect. And I think D'Angelo saw that and was like, oh, this is cool. Let me call this guy up, you know. Um, and I didn't really know who he was and, and – you know, but it was like, we're recording in electric Ladyland, So it was like, damn, okay, fine. Yeah. You know? So I was terrified. I was like, what the hell am I getting into here? You know, I'm not really that good on this, you know, instrument yet. I'm not that confident, you know? Right. And, um, so I went in there and it was him and this drummer, uh, Amir. And, um, now we just started playing, you know? And, and, and I was like, and I, re- I, they put me at my ease because, for one, they were just so damn good at what they were doing. You know what I mean? And I felt, I felt like automatically I I have a lot to learn from these guys, you know? Um, and, and, um, but they were total music nerds too. So I just felt really, really at home, you know? Right. And, um, and we just played a bunch, played a bunch of stuff. I wrote a few little ditties and, and, um, it was great. And then I got on with my life and, you know, the record came out like, four years later or something. And oh, really? It, it was a huge process like that. Yeah. Now everybody wants to talk to me about it, but it, you know, it's like, and Amir of course being Questlove. Yes. And the funny thing is a few years later, somebody was playing me some stuff by the roots. They go, you got to check this drummer out. Questlove, man, he's amazing. And I didn't know anything about anything, you know? <laughs> and, um, and I said, yeah, he's good, man, but he's not as good as that guy I played with named Amir. <laughs> 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 I mean, that record has like all those like really intense vocal layers and like, it's really like nothing else I've ever heard. Uh, was all, was that stuff, was, were you around for that part of it or was it, was what you guys were doing just sort of like jamming and coming up with grooves? Yeah, we, I mean, I had, I wrote a song already that I kind of had when I went in there that it ended up being called The Root. Right. Um, and uh, so I just played that and kind of showed it to them. Uh-huh. Um and and then we just we recorded everything live as a trio um that we that we played and then they went later and added all the other stuff wow um, including putting putting my uh whatever i sometimes stuff i played back uh with using pro tools to move it behind the beat you know cuz yeah. they were already experimenting experimenting with that really what I think of is kind of that way, that avant-garde way of phrasing really far behind the beat. Way back phrasing. Yeah. Yeah. It's even crazier than that. Cause it was, it's even like Picasso, like you're creating two weird different environments within the same environment and holding on to both of them. That shit was way beyond my pay grade, man. So, they... <laughs> so that was like manipulated after the fact. Yeah. I can't play like that to save my life. Um, I mean, I and... could play behind the beat, but, but you know, maybe some Memphis behind the beat, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you ended up with a co-write on that D'Angelo record. That's crazy. Yeah. But I didn't end up with a co-pay. You didn't? It took me years to get paid. I never really got paid for that, man. Really? Uh, no, never. That's crazy. It just, that music, music business is, uh, it's, it's a hell of a business, man. I, yeah. You'd think that that would be uh, a gift that would keep on giving. 
that would be nice. No, 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 no. It was, it was, I just worked really hard to try to figure out how to get paid for it. And I, and I ended up with a thousand dollars. So I think I should oh. be happy with that. You know, <laughs> that's shocking. yeah. I have not seen, I am, I am famous in this business for being on lots of stuff and working really hard and not really having seen much money for it. Um, and I think probably half of that is my fault, you know? Well, I mean, in a situation like that, it's really like, who would have known, like, how would you have possibly known that that record was going to turn into what it was? Like it probably just yeah. seemed like a, an oddball jam that you got invited to or something. Totally, totally. But, you know, historically, that's how those things happen, right? People get, they get caught up in, in the moment. And then there's always people around who, who know you're caught up in the moment. And, and uh, they're, they're going to, they're going to use that to, to get what they can out of you. You know, I mean, a lot of, I'm lucky I even got the writing credit at all, probably, you know. What's happening for you now? Like, are you, you mentioned you're going into the studio soon. Is that like, are you, are you doing another record with Lucy and, and that crew? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. We're going to go, we're going to go in next week, actually here in Greensboro and yeah. um, just do uh, me, Lucy, Doug. And then we have um, uh, Deshaun Hickman's going to play a little uh, lap and pedal steel on a couple tracks. And then my friend, me, we la lupa will be playing some bass trumpet on there as well. So, and doing a little singing. So we'll have some, have some guests, you know, spice it up a little bit and, and, uh, makes it so I don't have to play tons of solos, which is better for everybody. (laughs) Are you going to do any touring with the, with the steel player? That's, that's kind of an exciting prospect. Dude. Yeah, I would love to. It just has, it it has everything to do with whether we get paid enough or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. As is always the case, right? As is always Um, the case. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also going, I'm excited. I'm going down to New Orleans for Jazz Fest. I'm doing this thing with Nicholas Payton, uh-huh. um, which should be really a blast, you know. A, a duo or what? What's that? No, it's Nicholas, myself, and a, a drummer, uh, uh, this DC guy, kind of more of a, um, I can't remember his name, darn it, but great, um, kind of a, a more coming from the go go tradition, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm excited, you know, about that. That should be a lot of fun. And is is Garage a Trois? Is that like a, a a finite project that's no longer, or is that something that just keeps popping up every few years for you? Well, you know, it's funny. I just was on that jam cruise with them. Oh, um, really? And, oh, cool. uh, yeah, and you know what happened is, uh, you know, time, you know, before you know it, we recorded this record in '98 called All Cooped Out with yeah. Stanton. Yeah. And that eventually became Garage a Trois. And that record now is like full on nostalgia for a lot of these folks. Now these people want to want us to play, you know, these kind of festivals. And we're like, sure, we love we, we love it. No problem. You know, yeah. so so I think we're, you know, we're probably Skerek is kind of dealing with all the business because he's really good at that. And he okay. I think we're playing like maybe 10 gigs a year with that group, you know. Oh, Perfect. That's great. Yeah. Actually, right? Yeah. I mean, it's about as much as any of us can kind of fit into our schedules, you know? Yeah. Stanton is uh crazy busy. I would imagine that. I mean, oh yeah. Sure, yeah. They he, sure took off in a he, huge way. Yeah. He's great. We have a, we have a ball playing yeah. together. Um, any other projects on the go or is that pretty much your, your life these days? It's like you're staying out on the road and, and, and popping in and making records as much as you can. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm doing a thing with the young Dante, um, who's a Greensboro guy. I, I went into the studio and made a bunch of tracks where like, you know, I 
played drums and then played regular bass and a couple of guitar and maybe some keys just to give him like, you know, four or five minutes of stuff to kind of make something out of, you know, so we're, we're doing that project, but that probably will never be played live and we'll never go on the road. So, yeah, you know, yeah. we'll see, we'll see what happens. That's cool. It's cool that you're doing stuff around Greensboro too. It's like a, it's like a whole new world for you, I guess. That's neat. Yeah. I, I feel like it's important and it's important for me to, when I'm here to get out and give uh, these people what I can, because, you know, it's not, you know, you, you get kind of a false sense of, of reality when you live in a place like New York or Seattle or Nashville, even, you know, where, you know, everyone is quote unquote special. And a lot of the people who went to music school could afford music school, you know, and that's a, that affects the narrative of, of the music that's played. And most of the people here, you know, you come to a place like this and they don't have resources and they don't have tools, you know, but they have, talent and they have ambition and they have a narrative that they desperately want to get out. So, you know, it's, it's, I feel in whatever way I can, I feel like I have to to help them with whatever resources I can help them with, you know? Well, thanks so much for talking to me today. I sorry, sorry. I took up so much of your time, but, uh, no way, man. I I fucking loved it. It it was (laughs) my pleasure. man. And, Uh, and I, I still have that record you made, man, the, with the string quartet. Yeah. That shit is killing, man. I can't oh, believe. Thanks, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine making a record like that. That's why I listened to it. I was just like, and it just sounds so good, man. Uh, well, hopefully we can uh, play together or do something someday. It'd be really fun. I hope so, man. Next time I'm in Nashville, I'm, uh, we're going to hang. We just can't manage to find a time where we're both in in a <laughs> no. town at the same time, you know? Yeah, it's hard these days. I'm I'm out a lot, too, and I know you are, too. So it's it's not uh, it's not easy. It's not easy, but thank God we have a gig, you know? Yes. That's what I think, too. I'm just like, I'm thankful. It's great. I can't complain. Amen. Thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Okay, man. You bet. We'll talk to you soon. All right. I'll see you. Folks, that was my conversation with the amazing Charlie Hunter. I had a ball. I think he had fun. And I hope you'll share this podcast around, tell people about it, and we'll see you next week for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.